Hello sword people and welcome to this episode of The Sword Guy. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to tell you about a package of free courses I've put together for you, which include a basic class in longsword, rapier, breathing exercises, meditation, and of course, joint care. I think these classes, especially meditation, breathing, and joint care, are simply too important to put behind a paywall, and so they are entirely free. You can find them at go.guywindsor.net. Just sign up there to join hundreds of your fellow sword enthusiasts and get immediate access to all of this material. I look forward to training with you. Now, on with the show. Hello, sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy, and I'm here today with David Ito, who is not only mad about swords, but also eats fire. So we'll be talking a little bit about um, swords and training and circus training and fire, lots of fire, I hope. Um, you can find his Instagram at Ito, I-T-T-O, fire show, and also on Instagram at I-T-T-O, swords, so Ito, swords. And the I watched it today, the promo uh, of the circus skills at the place where he works for IlluminaireEntertainment.com. That's IlluminaireEntertainment.com. It's an absolutely stunning, stunning circus demonstrations. So do not miss that. I'll link to everything in the show notes, of course. So without further ado, David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Guy. It's a pleasure to be here. So just to orient everyone, uh, whereabouts in the world are you? So I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and uh, w one of my fellows is Kimberly Roseblade, who is one of your previous guests. You know, you, you Canadians are heavily overrepresented on this show. It's <laughs> what is it about Canada that produces such interesting people? Uh, land of immigrants, the opportunity and the openness of a society willing to accept others, especially in our major metropolitan areas. Wow. That's, that's a really good answer to what was actually a hypothetical question. Good job. Well done. All right. So um, now I usually ask everyone, you know, what made you want to start historical martial arts and how did you actually get started? That's kind of how I tend to start these things. But actually, we will get on to that. I am more curious as to what made you want to put burning things in your mouth. <clears throat> So it actually is related to swords that got me okay. into wanting to play with fire and eating fire. Um, Tell me many, about it. Yeah, years ago, long time ago, I saw Kill Bill, and I uh, saw the rope. I saw the rope dart, the ball and chain used by Gogo Yubari, and I started practicing that. And then I learned I could light that on fire. And from there. <laughs> Spinning a ball of fire got me into this wider community of other responsible pyros. And I ended up learning about the art behind playing with fire. And that path inevitably led to things like breathing fire, lighting myself on fire, and of course, eating fire. Well, you know, I've done a little bit of work with flexible weapons. Um, and the notion of... Okay, getting it under control is already massively more difficult than with a rigid weapon, like a sword. Um, but the notion of doing it while it's actually lit on fire, <laughs> it fills 
with, with shock and horror. How do you manage that without like setting fire to yourself and everything around you? Well, there is a lot of practice, much like any other martial art. We repeat actions correctly thousands of times, so we build up muscle memory and awareness of an object in space in relation to our body. Uh, the other ways to mitigate the risk associated with playing with fire involves engaging in certain practices like understanding the physics behind your fuel when it ignites, how volatile it is, uh, and then making sure that any fuel that you work with is properly contained, stored, and that when tools are prepared, you uh, spin them around or use centrifugal force to make sure that excess fuel doesn't go flying into the audience. Okay, yeah. I'm just, I, I recently interviewed Tony Wolf for this show, who has an extraordinarily broad background, not unlike yours. And he's done a lot of work in um, uh, professional wrestling. And, you know, he, he was very, he was very careful to, when I started asking questions that would lead to the unveiling of professional secrets, he would very politely steer me away from that. So if we get into that area, do, do feel entirely free to say, well, actually, guy, that's a trade secret or something like that. So, but I am still like really curious about these, these, these darts and whips. So how, how did you even, even find the right equipment for doing the, the go-go dart thing from Kill Bill? I put a padlock at the end of a rope. Okay, that would do it. <laughs> so, so you sort of improvised, um, as we all did in the early days of historical martial arts, and came up with something with about the right handling characteristics. I don't know if it had the right handling characteristics, but I did know when I made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, being hit by a padlock on the end of a rope. <laughs> I, I've, I've done quite a bit of bullwhip work. Um, and yeah, after my first bullwhip lesson, I, I came home so stripy. My girlfriend at the time thought I'd been to see a dominatrix. It was, it was, yeah, you just hit yourself over and over and over again with those flexible things. So what was the, what was the key to really getting it under control? Uh, drilling basic motions thousands of times. And then eventually you begin getting an awareness of where this object is in space in relation to your body because of the pressure that it exerts as it pulls on the rope. Because as you're spinning around, uh, sometimes you don't have a visual reference for where anything, where that object is. And so mm -hmm. it's all tactile. So you have to have a sense okay. of feeling for where it is, like fighting in harness. Right. Okay, I, I know exactly what you meant when you said that, but I'm guessing some of the listeners might not. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Uh, which part? About the um, knowing where everything is in space because you can feel the or you can feel the weapon moving in your hand and the, the kind of the, the senses the, the sense you get of it in your hand and how that relates to fighting in harness. Oh well, certainly. So as I as I was using the rope my body would eventually memorize where the object would be during the swing. And much like, you know, fight, especially when I found that when I fought in harness, after a while, I would be able to get a very good idea of where something like my opponent's sword might be, even though it's not in my line of sight, simply because as I'm holding my own weapon in contact with someone else's weapon, 
I know that I know usually where their weapon is. I either have contact or I don't have contact with their weapon. Mm-hmm. I know that if I have contact with someone's weapon and my, my hands are at one hand is at about the height of my hip and one hand's at about the height of my shoulder, I have contact with the other person's weapon. Their tip is probably around the height of my uh, torso. And mm. that, that's the kind okay. of tactile sensitivity we all strive to develop. Sure. Now, I actually had a look at your Instagram, and um, I see you like wearing armor in a supermarket, holding a beer. So clearly, clearly, you're quite keen on the armor. I mean, I'm not actually sure that it is you in the armor because you've got a helmet on, but it is you, right? It, that is my harness. Uh, okay. Um, trying so how to, did you? How, how did, did you get, get into? Yeah. So how how did you get into? historical martial arts in general, harness fighting in particular? Um, so I I started getting into harness fighting through the work that I did with the Academy of European Medieval Martial Arts. The decision to join um, Emma, as we normally refer to it as, c- came from the same place we all do, a deep-seated desire to learn how to play with swords. As a child, I did see Star Wars, and that did have a big influence on my decision. And you and me both. Yeah, I saw Star Wars, and I knew as a child I wanted to fight with swords. So that journey actually began when I was 15 in sports saber fencing. Mm-hmm. But one of the frustrations that I ended up having when I initially did sports saber fencing was uh, how priority and right of way was explained in a manner that did not make it obvious as to how it was martially applicable. Rather, it was taught in a fashion that made you aware of the technicalities required to score points. But I had a hard time understanding why someone got a point when they hit me with priority, but they committed suicide to do it, that they were awarded a point. Yeah. And so that, that, that was the beginning. Um, then, Growing, I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, so that, that that's where I first started learning fencing. Then uh, when I turned 18, a kendo club opened in Halifax, so I started doing kendo to get in better touch with my, my parents' martial culture. And I did kendo for a very long time as well. And uh, I did kendo for about nine years, the last two yeah. years of Doing kendo, I was going anywhere from 20 to 40 hours a week. Wow, that's a lot of kendo. Now, I've never actually interviewed a kendoka on the show before, so, and I'm guessing that most of the people listening have never experienced it and probably haven't even seen it live. They may have seen YouTube videos of it or what have you, or seen it in movies. So, would you mind sort of describing what kendo is really about, how it works, how it's scored, that kind of thing? Uh, Of course. So, Um, The modern incarnation of Kendo was designed to make it acceptable to the American occupation force towards at the end of the Second World War. And it was presented as as a character-building exercise, which it definitely is. But the Kendo that we're used to seeing on on mediums such as YouTube is the exact same as modern Olympic fencing. It is a game of stylized tag where your objective is to hit first within the technical guidelines of the game. 
And mm -hmm. what is always curious to watch in, in these types of sports is that it can be hard to understand why people are not being punished for allowing themselves to be hit. And Kendoka are hitting, trying to hit very specific targets when they play. And the specific targets they're usually trying to hit is uh, above the right hand, uh, the mm -hmm. forearm above the right wrist, the head above the crown line. Uh, a, the only thrust is to the throat. And uh, there is a cut that would be across the, uh, the abdomen area, uh, above the hip, below the rib cage. And this is done with the bamboo sticks. And uh, so as you watch players, they're trying to strike each other to those specific target areas. And they have technicalities on how you must display that you've hit someone in order to achieve a point where you have to strike the designated target area as well as calling out the target area. And then you demonstrate an aware uh, zanshin, which can be translated as awareness, that's the best translation that I've been taught. And after you strike your opponent, you run past them and you turn around to face them, ready to fight again. So, uh, so you keep your head in the game. Yeah, to be able to demonstrate uh, the control over the sword yourself and uh, your mental state to be ready to continue to fence. And uh, there's a lot of willpower associated and concentration associated with this exercise. And that's why it was really, uh, they emphasize that character building element through the discipline of trying to do the act. So at what point do you call out the strike you're about to make or that you are making? Uh, you do that as you're trying to uh, um, hit the target. So the, co uh, the target areas for the head is called men. For uh, the 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 wrist uh, forearm kote, the abdomen is called do, and the thrust to the throat is called tsuki. Okay, so while you're actually in the process of striking to these targets, you call out the name of the thing that you're hitting. Yes, you so do. So you can't change. So you can't change your mind. Nope, you can't change your mind as you're doing it. Wow. So one thing that does is. If you are successful, that is a display of personal control. And it makes it easier for judges to interpret actions. And this was the year I was actually going to go back to sport kendo after leaving it because I actually did my first sport HEMA tournament. And uh, one thing that, that dawned upon me was that uh, sometimes human error occurs and people end up missing things. So I figure that if I started actually calling my targets as I'm hitting them in a HEMA competition, it would actually facilitate judges' ability to perceive what I'm doing. <laughs> That's brilliant. Like it's, it's well known. Every sport fencer in any style, whether that's foil or longsword or whatever else, you know that the judges are blind, drunk, and biased against you. Not so you have to make it super easy, super easy for them to understand what's going on and make it impossible for them to make the wrong call. But sometimes judges are overworked and tired. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, 
yeah, it's 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 often not their fault that they make these mistakes, but it is extremely hard to judge. It is um, correctly, but I think actually for the best attitude going in though as a competitor is to assume that the judge won't see anything you don't show them really clearly. So you have you have that kind of extra pressure, not just to do it, but to do it in a way that makes it really easy for the judge to award you the hit. Of course, and. Um, I, I had always wondered when I watched a lot of HEMA tournament videos why people got so close to each other and why they were hitting these deep targets. And after that first experience of having some of my hits not recognized, that I started mm. to understand why some of these sport HEMAists are getting so close to each other, hitting those deeper targets. Oh, so like you mean going for like pommel strikes to the face rather than cuts to the arm? Yeah, because some, it's easy to miss an arm hit, but like there's a lot of crashing in, in the sport of HEMA. It looks like they're crashing into each other, but I've just realized that they simply need to get at a range where there is no mistake in the judge's mind or eye that a hit was landed. Uh, but also, if if the longsword tournament, if we're talking about longsword is intended to be a place where you can go to practice things like Fiore's Longsword or the Lichtenau material or what have you. Um, that includes grappling and throws and pommel strikes and things like that. So the correct thing to do if you're practicing in that sort of discipline is if, let's say, the blades have come together and you can't get a clear strike moving in so that you can get around their sword and hit them on the other side, that's just sort of, it's just part of the art, isn't it? It is. And uh, I, I'm glad when rule sets do choose to include grappling. And uh, mm. the lack of grappling is actually what made me want to explore um, the historical martial arts because there are many things that happen in sport fencing and sport kendo. A lot of hits the athletes receive for which they are not punished. Or mm-hmm. they, they do techniques that they would never do if there was punching, kicking, or wrestling involved. Right. Yeah, to my mind, I have a sort of simple, um, sort of, uh, like a litmus test for a martial art. If there are no kicks to the balls, it's not a martial art. It's some kind of combat sport. <clears throat> yep, that's true. Like uh, the, the sport fencers that I work with here in Toronto, they're aware that they would never do what they were doing with the sharp object. They're totally aware of the fact that they're essentially running onto ends of swords in the pursuit of points. But of the four major sword sports, I chose Epe because Mm -hmm. it is the most likely to punish you for allowing yourself to be hit. Because in Epe, you could get a double hit. And that's the only reason why I practice it as extensively as I do. Okay, so um, you mentioned that you were a sports sabreur in your teens, and then you took up kendo, and clearly did a lot of kendo, um, and you then came back to sport fencing? I did. I I decided to go with Epe because I found someone in Toronto who coaches uh, Epe, sport Epe, and he was uh, the last, technically he's the last champion of the Soviet Union. Oh my he, God! He was an Olympian for the Soviet Union. He went to uh, South wow. Korea in 1988, and uh, 
And he even went for Canada in 2008, 20 years after the, the first oh God. into the Olympics for the Soviet Union. And then uh, he's the last champion of the Soviet Union because uh, he won the last, you know, Soviet tournament mm -hmm. for Epe. His name is Igor Tikhomorov. That's where I, and he runs sword players where I work. And uh, he gave me a job actually starting in 2007 because he was getting ready for the Olympics and his son was still a minor and he needed someone to help run his school. So that's how he started giving me employment. And after his Olympic run, he realized that I was competent enough that I was able to walk away from a boring office job and then effectively just do nothing but fight with swords as well as play with fire. You are, you are living the dream, sir. You walked away from the boring office job and you're making your living with swords. Now, I know that my listeners will not forgive me if I don't ask you to unpack that a bit because it's something that a lot of people would like to be able to do. So could you go into a bit more detail about sort of exactly how, how did you really get the job? What, how did you prepare for it? What was it like going from an office to a sal? Okay, so um, because I had a boring nine to five office job, I would just go. I would go to practice every day. I would take lessons. I would train hard. I was simply available. I was available to be instructed. I was available to help, and that is a very important part of anybody who ha wants to make that transition. There was also another very conscious decision that I had to make when I decided I was going to go into the sword arts and as well as supplement my income with my fire performance. And that is the conscious decision and understanding that I was going to be poor. <laughs> you have yeah. to understand that you're going to choose poverty if you're going to do this and that yeah you, you and me both that, that was, yeah that, that's that's the thing really it's um you know you if if you're addicted to a decent paycheck then giving that up to be poor and play with swords is is going to be really hard but yeah i was lucky i got into this as a professional early enough that i'd never actually made any money so i wasn't used to having any money oh, so i was basically i was basically still living like a student so i was living on sort of student levels of um income anyway so the fact that that you know didn't really change much for the first i guess 10 years that i was teaching professionally yes, yeah. um yeah simply not simply not needing a lot of money is it's probably the most useful life skill you can have if you want to be a swordsmanship instructor. True. That's right. Yeah. But please carry on. And um, so in terms of like sport coaching for fencing, I have no designations from Canada, like no coaching certificate from Canada. But I think okay. but but I think the endorsement of a Soviet Olympian is worth way more to me than anything the Canadian system could have ever provided me. That yeah, a Soviet fair. athlete thought I was competent enough to teach their sport in their school is bigger. That's, yeah. 
Yes, that's, just, that's that's like having having um, Einstein say you're actually quite good at physics, old chap. <laughs> yeah, and that that was that was a, a a very big deal for me. So, did he actually teach you how to coach? Uh, no, I actually went to university to be a high school teacher, so I already had an idea about how to manage a class. Okay, mm-hmm. like I, I do have a post secondary degree in history and in education, so that I was going to be a high school teacher, but I discovered after graduation that my lack of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and in Canada, not being able to teach French meant that I am not a priority. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so so in like from 2007, you've been teaching professionally um, sport fencing at Sword Players in Toronto. That's when uh, I started. So, so what, how did you get from there to Emma? Well, um, I, you know, uh, what I ended up doing was I decided that, like, I knew the limitations of the sport. My decision to play sport at Bay was, as I said, the likelihood of punishment for being hit. But I had this awareness that a lot of the motions I was doing in the sport of fencing, the things that I had done in kendo, uh, were sport. And I started looking for a place that might be able to teach me uh, medieval swordsmanship. So that's how I came across uh, the Academy of Medieval, uh, the Academy of European Medieval Martial Art and began historical martial art because I wanted to learn uh, longsword and that's usually why most people get into historical martial art. They want to fight with sword and they want to do it soon. What made me want to pursue historical martial art was the fact that they had a surviving manuscript. So it was the Getty manuscript for Fiore and that they had taken the time and research to be able to explain to me very clearly why the wrestling and dagger components matter. Because, right. uh, because of how they would apply to harness and the, the potential of being able to participate in this activity and actually learn how to fight in harness. And that's why, I, that's why I stayed, even though I didn't necessarily sword fight as much as I thought I would. I got to do wrestling. I got to do dagger. And I'm glad I did because it helped with harness fighting. It's even helped, especially uh, grappling has been very helpful in fencing because of the tactile sensitivity I, I gained from it. Sure, and, I, and that's bringing us back to the essence of being able to control a flexible weapon too, is, is that sense in your hand of what's going on far away from you. Exactly. It's not in my line of sight, and yet I can control the situation. Okay. So. Um, now, obviously, you train a lot. I, I know a little bit about about circus life for two reasons. Firstly, my cousin is a professional aerialist, and uh, she actually gave me a trapeze lesson once, which was absolutely epic. Oh, wonderful! And the school I like that I, aerialist. Oh, right. Okay, so you know all about it. Um, and the school that I teach at regularly in Seattle, Lonin. Um, they practice in a circus school. They have a space inside a circus school which is 
it's brilliant it means that like literally before my classes are on a friday night they have an open flying trapeze tent where you can go and pay 10 bucks and have a go on the flying trapeze which is so frightening it is so much fun um but also you know there we are swinging swords around and feeling all kind of you know physically competent and (laughs) then this person just appears to be defying all of the laws of physics simultaneously and you go hang on i thought i knew how to move but that that person (laughs) dear god how on earth did they learn to do that so um i imagine you have uh, all sorts of insights in in training how to train that sort of thing so um could you describe sort of how you train and and you know what what your training sessions look like well i my morning usually starts um i wake up i have a bowel movement and then i do 100 burpees that's how okay. i start my day right that's a good start Yep, I got a hundred burpees down in under six minutes on a regular basis. Right. Um, okay, that puts you like ten times fitter than most people I know. Carry then, on. Yeah, and then uh, I do some admin work for myself related to either swords or performance for a few hours, and then I go. Uh, due to COVID, there are currently uh, reduced hours for fencing school. So then um, I go to the fencing school where my my instructor, Igor, at Sword Players, modified an industrial machine and programmed it. And all it does is goes backward, forward. It changes direction randomly and at various speeds. And I will do footwork for anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. Okay. And yeah, it's just this. Do you, do you have that on video anywhere? Because that um, sounds I will, uh, fascinating. I will uh, take a video of it. Uh, I will probably be back there on uh, Monday. I'll take a video and I'll be able to send it over to you uh, before you before you publish this. And uh, brilliant! I'll, I'll I'll put a link in the show notes. That'd be fantastic. Okay, so you you've done half an hour to an hour of footwork on a machine. Okay. Yeah, and I just go backward forward. And the nice thing is the sets are are three minutes and 30 seconds where a fencing round in sport is only three. Mm. And then I give myself a minute break. And the intensity and speed that I have to move is uh, slightly more than would actually be necessary for a, an epee bout. So it's very good exercise. Um, right. So I, I do that multiple days a week. With COVID, I've been doing it five days a week. I did it closer to three days a week before COVID. And then before COVID, between Emma, uh, between Emma, uh, Sport Epe, and then fi- and then reaching out to friends throughout the GTA, I would uh, be out. I would probably get to sword fight and fence seven days a week. And that has been going on since uh that's been going on for pretty much a decade now where i try to make a point of exercising and fighting seven days a week wow i i very much admire your dedication so um your fire eating practice i assume you you keep up those skills even during covid times well i do because uh 
Um, I will go into uh, the fencing school on a day when it's not open and I'll practice in there because I want to make sure that I don't have to deal with uh, a change in wind direction, which could actually make it dangerous. Yeah, sure. And I also have a weekly gig, but the thing about fire eating is realistically like the, the, the fuel that I'm using is poisonous. So I don't need to do it that often. Right. Um, but you do need to practice, you know, swinging the things around, I assume. Um, yeah. And I do regularly practice swinging things around as well for fire performance. I often work that into my training day along with any sword drills or uh, any fencing that I have to do that day. So like, like the practice never stops. Amen. Yep. Amen to that. And it must. Um, yes. Um, just a, a quick technical question. Um, when you say burpee, there are I, there are several variations on a burpee. What kind of burpee are you doing? So I squat, hands to the ground, feet go out. I do a push up, jump back up, hundred times. Okay. So when you jump back up, are your feet coming off the ground? Yes. When you jump up. Yes. Okay. So it's a kind of classic. Um, uh, so a classic burpee like they do in, for example, Spartan fitness. Yes. I, right. With okay. Push up and, uh, yep, it usually takes me under six minutes to do it because I can think of no exercise that inflicts as much misery in as little <laughs> amount of time. Okay. Well, I, I have a, I have a variation for you if you want to, if you want to play a little bit. Oh, I'm in. I use, I, I use this for, um, uh, you know, if I've got a class for the students, um, we, you know, we can start with, okay, you just get yourself down on the ground, you do a push up and then you stand up again. And that's like, that's for people who can't do burpees yet. That's a good way to sort of get them into it. But for people for whom that's easy, you add the jump when they, they do the push up, they, they sort of squat thrust their feet between their hands and jump up. Okay. But the, um, a little tweak, which makes it just, horrible is as you jump up you bring your knees to your chest okay and then the next level from that is as you jump up you bring your knees to the chest and turn 180 degrees in the air so you're facing the other way right and then you drop down do the push-up jump up turn 180 degrees the other way so you jump right jump left each time that sounds like a wonderful idea yeah you you might you might want to try it's kind of you know speeds things along a bit it it, it it increases the pain and and the absolute worst of all i find is you breathe out completely and you see how many of those you can do before you have to breathe in again i think i'll i would try that <laughs> it's it's really nasty i have a horrible suspicion you are probably already without ever having done one you're probably much better at these things than i am but i thought i'd share that with you because i think you're you're the sort of person who would appreciate them oh yeah and my teenagers this weekend are going to get a taste of that <laughs> the, the, the teenagers that i coach are going to get a taste of that excellent well, well well tell them sorry from me in advance of course Excellent. Okay. Um, now, what are your thoughts on protective equipment, training tournaments at events, that sort of thing? I have never regretted wearing any kind of protective equipment. Um, in terms of things like uh, the thing that I'm always 
like when I fence for myself, I wear my mask, a gorget. Um, I wear leather gloves with uh, with metal plates on it. Uh, so you know Milanese mitten gauntlets. Yep. So I wear the plates. I wear a couple of plates that would be in the style of the Milanese mitten gauntlets over my finger and the back of my hand. And then I've got metal plates on my thumb. And the yep. reason why is I, I found that some of the older incarnations of HEMA gauntlets actually restricted people's movement. Even the modern ones do too. Yeah, and you couldn't fully, you know, you couldn't hold the sword in a manner to get the full extension of the weapon. So I found that these gloves reinforced with the plates allowed me to hold the sword in a manner to maximum extension because, you know, it does have to be bespoke and customized. And it was a topic that was brought up by uh, a lot of the other podcasters earlier because they were women and they were smaller and there was nothing for their size. That's it right. You know, um, I've often wondered, you know, lots of money and time and intelligence has gone into trying to make modern humor gloves to protect against longsword blows and what have you. And I've never understood it because to my mind, this problem was solved. 500 years ago exactly a well-fitting pair of steel gauntlets will do all of that require none of this modern technology and you know plastics and what have you and you know nothing's perfect you can still get your fingers broken through them if you're not careful and if if you're unlucky but you know i've just never understood why why this whole plastic mitten thing became a became an area of research like why why would you bother when the problem's already been solved but I, I i think it has something to do with tournament rule sets where some tournaments don't allow steel gauntlets for some reason um i don't know why but either but you know not everybody can afford to get bespoke steel gauntlets obviously sure there is that but then these modern ones aren't much cheaper nope they aren't and uh i i just find that they impede the range of motion in the hand. Absolutely. Yeah, but, I can't stand them. But, you know, I think the best protective equipment are fencers who have bodily awareness and control who know how to pull their strikes. You know, uh, yeah, I've, training is the best safety equipment by, by a mile. I agree entirely. And, uh, and I, I, People start fencing sooner than they should. Like, there's tons of foil manuals from the 19th century which talk about this idea of, you know, waiting a fairly long time to fence before you even get the fence. And I understand why they would make people wait. It was to develop that control over the body, Mm -hmm. to be able to execute the motions without unnecessary force. Yeah, and that was certainly part of it. Yeah. Um, okay, so now are there, I know you train a lot, um, but everyone, literally everyone I've ever talked to about this has something that they know they should be training more of. Do you have anything like that? Well, yeah, but as I mentioned earlier, like this was the year I was going to return to kendo because okay. what I wanted to do was um, to really get in practice of 
doing the controlled strike while calling the target so that it would be easier to then manifest and illustrate to potential judges that I am exercising control. Like that was the thing that I was hoping to do. Okay, so you'd go back to Kendo to practice calling your targets so that, that you could then go to um, sort of sport longsword and do that same thing there. Yeah, so that the judge... That's a genius idea. Yeah, that's a genius idea. <laughs> okay. Um, but I imagine you have like, what, nine years of training between 10 and 40 hours a week in Kendo. So your Kendo skills, are they may be a bit rusty, but they're probably pretty solid. Well, I still regularly use like my, my kendo skills when I do longsword. Most of the time when I fend longsword, I just get into the guard that I used in kendo. The, oh, okay. The most common hit I land is to the outside of the right forearm, which is the kote hit from kendo. And uh, I've probably done that strike over 10,000 times now. Wow. Okay. And, uh, And I like to call that, I jokingly like to call that uh, move the, uh, the Skywalker special. <laughs> right hand. So, so yeah, so you are, you are Darth Vader. <laughs> Excellent. So what have been your main influences uh, as a teacher, researcher, practitioner? I imagine Igor gets pretty high billing in that, but there must be others. So, uh, of course, Igor gets high billing because... You know, he taught me a lot about Epe. He reprogrammed my body. Uh, the other major influences in terms of martial artists would be my instructors at Emma, mm -hmm. Brian McElmoyle, Kelly Rakuda, and Aldo Valente were my my instructors at Emma. I have a. I know I know Brian Kelly and Aldo quite well. So if they're listening, hi guys. It's nice to almost see you. And then. Uh, And as I when I started at Emma, I had a Kenjutsu instructor that I found, mm -hmm. and uh, he moved to Japan. I have not seen him in about a decade. He is returning to Canada, and his name was uh, Reg Hardman, and uh, mm -hmm. he did uh, he did a Kenjutsu, and I I practiced extensively with him. He was probably one of the most terrifying persons that I ever did drills with, and I am grateful for it. And, uh, uh, could you unpack that a bit? What what was so frightening about it? Um, now, uh, there's this intangible thing in that the Japanese martial arts talk about where you have a, a certain presence, you know, the way yeah. you stand, the way you look. And uh, he had that, right? He had this, the way he stood, the way he looked. Um, and also because I know that... Uh, Well, he, he had been in the army and he had been uh, in one of those airborne units in the Canadian forces that got disbanded. Mm -hmm. And so I know that he had been involved in military operations where he had been shot at and had to shoot back. Right. Yeah. So that does change things a bit. Yeah. So this was a man who was actually had firsthand experience with lethal violence. Right. Yeah. But I, I have I have students, friends, colleagues and teachers like that. And there is. Yeah, it's it's not experience I ever want to get for myself, but I totally recognize the value of it. Yeah. And uh, having an instructor like that was extremely useful because, uh, you know, after a while of 
you know, feeling that type of, I guess the best way to describe it is energy. You know, it, it does harden yeah. a person a little bit. And it has definitely been valuable when I go out and do any of the other fencing that I do because, let's face it, I'm just playing tag by comparison. Right. right. It puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It does. And it was very helpful. It made me much less afraid any time I would do any of my other fencing-based activities. And, uh, yeah, so those are our influences. Those are the people that have influenced mm-hmm. And then, of course, the other influences in my life, obviously, Star Wars. And uh, I like to joke to I like to make Star Wars jokes when I teach classes. Yeah. Uh, like the Skywalker special being hitting the right hand and also uh, playing too much Dungeons and Dragons. I always like to joke with students that, uh, you know, I am the result of playing too much Dungeons and Dragons. Or no, I, I I have to call you up on that one. I don't think it's actually possible to play too much Dungeons and Dragons if you actually still eat and sleep. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess you're right there. <laughs> and uh, the other thing that I would I because we do get a lot of uh, people who have played Dungeons and Dragons. They're nerdy people. Uh, whenever I would introduce important historical manuscripts that inform our study. I would pull out the Fiore manuscript first mm-hmm. and show yes, them good. that. I would show them the, the George Silver because we like to use the, the brief instructions because there's a lot of information in the brief instructions uh, about the grounds and governors that I absolutely love in trying to summarize and explaining to people what we're doing when we fence. Yep. And then – the, uh, then the last two historical manuscripts I always pull out are the gag ones. Uh, one is uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> and then the other, and the other important historical manuscript that I like to introduce students to is the Player's Handbook for Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I just it, it helps put people at ease. Right. To let yeah, I, I have human. Yeah, I, I do the same sort of thing in, in a beginner's class. Like the first time I gather everybody around the, we have a, a lectern in my cell with, you know, Fiore open on it usually. And the first time the, the beginners who've never been in the cell before, they, I gather them around and show them the source or whatever. They're usually about six feet away from me. It's like pre, you know, it's like they're practicing for COVID long before it ever happened. Um, but if I do my job right, when we circle back around to it about 45 minutes later, they're all kind of shoulder to shoulder and kind of almost slightly nudging me out of the way so they can get a better look at the source because they've, they've, you know, with enough sort of humor and what have you, it breaks down the barriers of it. They relax, they become more comfortable and then they're actually able to learn stuff. Exactly. And it's important to be able to set up that kind of environment for them. Right. And, and D and D jokes will really help with that. Of course. And, okay. So we we sort of brought up COVID a couple of times. Um, what effect has it had on your training and practice? I imagine that your schools closed at least for a while. And what do you see happening in a year's time or so? Okay. So effects of COVID. So the um, the Academy of European Medieval Martial Arts uh, was in a space called the Fighting Arts Collective. So, uh, right. And, uh, so we actually lost that space. So, uh, the, 
Emma is currently a vagrant and is going to be looking for new space, and they are waiting for a second wave to clear. Oh my god, yeah. I, I've actually been to that space, and I seem to remember there was like the ability, you, you could actually set up um, sort of paintball or softball in uh, airsoft kind of. Yes. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, so sort of close quarter battle stuff, military things. Yes. My so so that, space, that space is no longer there. Yeah, exactly. That space is no longer there. Oh, that's a shame. My wife before my wife was the circus programmer there. While I was swinging sword, she was running her circus program there. And so that's gone. The sport fencing school where I work had reopened at the beginning of September. Mm -hmm. And all we we can do is actually we can't really do any free fencing. Uh, because the uh, Ontario Fencing Association, which is the governing body for sport fencing, has decreed that uh, that it's a risk to have people actually doing free fencing. And then, so uh, so there was a very large chunk of time between March, essentially until the uh, I started training again very much at the beginning of April, but between March and August. All I did was burpees, push-ups, squats, and now I can do a pull-up from a dead hand. <laughs> Good. And then, so I was able to start fencing outside, wearing face masks under masks, starting in August when right. we entered a certain stage of reopening. And, uh, but I believe that in post-COVID, when we actually managed to get when we actually managed to get to a point where schools can try to reopen. Like I, I do worry that potential students may not necessarily be in the economic position to sign up for anything. Yeah. And if they do, they're probably going to lean towards those types of schools that will allow them to engage in free fencing sooner. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the yeah, probably is excellent i believe it is the it has created controlled fencers where i feel comfortable fencing in a mask and a t-shirt and gloves with other people at full speed and intensity without being hurt but if the if the average person who wants to get into historical martial art might have to wait one to two years to be able to fence they may not be able to wait that long. They're not. They may not have the financial security required. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with that problem from a student motivation point of view. But yes, now of course there's that additional financial issue. Yeah, because yeah. of what the co- what this disease has done in terms of layoffs, furloughs, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. reduced incomes, people having to be on some kind of assistance, the fact that businesses have closed, stop hiring. So this means that anyone who is going to try to enter this may not be able to for lack of funds or for lack of funds and instability are going to gravitate sure. towards uh, what allows them to access what they want, which is the sword fighting component of it. Yeah, though, I mean... It is possible, I think, that with you know offices closing, there there should be a massive dip in real estate values, particularly in the centre of cities, and there may be 
cheap opportunities to hire bigger spaces, which will enable clubs to perhaps lower their entrance fees or have a, a sliding scale of fees where people who can't afford the full price because you know they don't have a job can pay a much lower fee to still train. So there's there is I see some possible germs of hope there. Oh, you are right, because there will be retail spaces all of a sudden available that we could assume with high enough ceilings. And yep. the thing is, the the wait to see what this second wave will do and to see what scientists are going and medical professionals will be able to do to help either to either immunize us against this or cure us mm-hmm. uh, to make cures easily available is going to be key. Even before the COVID ends, if an inexpensive, accurate, fast test becomes commercially available at pharmacies, I believe that would go a very long way towards helping most martial arts schools reopen at a brisk pace. Because if we can just spit into a cup and know within five minutes that we're good to go. and that's That would be superb. That, like we could do that. You show up to class, you spit in the cup, and then you know whether you should be there. It's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit like the, the opposite of um, dope testing in, in sports. Exactly. Wow, that, that's actually a really good idea. Huh. Um, speaking of good ideas, uh, what is the best idea you've never acted on? Um, you know, every once in a while, I sometimes want to break free and try to like set up my own school and be fully independent and go through all okay. the terror, the joy, and the liberate the liberation associated with it. Okay, what would you teach? I would probably teach. I would teach the my strong suits. I would probably teach things like Epe foil. And how they're martially applicable to things like the long sword, which I, mm-hmm. uh, I would probably teach long sword. I would probably mm-hmm. teach to the best of my ability the aspects of grappling that are extremely useful for things like fencing. Because if I were to do this and I need to pay rent and feed myself, you know, I would end up having to look at the students as as customers as well, where like the the appetite for most people coming into historic martial art is the sword fight. Yeah. Um, let me share with you the, probably the best bit of advice I ever got when I started my school. And this came from a guy called Yari Renko, who is a very senior martial artist in Finland where I started my school. And I happened to be at the shooting range and he was there and we got talking and he said, I've never forgotten it. He said, Never water down your art for the sake of getting more students, because if you do, you will end up with no art and no students. Right. Okay. So I I totally get where you're coming from, but Yari proved correct in my experience. Um, it's you know there are there are plenty of thriving schools that don't do free play at all and not that i'm recommending that i think free play is an essential part of training but you know if you're if you clearly communicate the value of what you're doing in my experience students are willing to wait and to to because they're not just waiting they're they're training towards something 
And rather than just giving them a crap version of it at the beginning, you can give them a much better version of it later on because they have the, the depth of training to actually really do it well. Um, and to my mind, the proof in the pudding was when I started my school, I think we started the first batch of students doing free play type stuff about a year and a bit after they started. And about two and a bit years after my school started, one of my senior students, I called Toppy Mikola, managed to take my sword off me in free play. You must have been so proud. <laughs> Do you know, it was, it is literally, it is still maybe one of the top five fencing moments of my entire life because it proved beyond reasonable doubt that I could teach a student from scratch. He had no fencing or martial arts background before. I could teach a student from scratch to be a properly competent longsword fencer. Yeah, because, you know, if he could take the sword off me, he's he knows at least something, right? So I, I think if you do decide to do this, um, obviously, you know, I've, I've sort of been there and done that. If you want any help or advice, just, just pop me an email and we can talk about it. Um, but but my, my, my top thing would be just to repeat Yari Renko's advice at you. Um, yeah, never water down the art for the sake of getting more students, or you'll end up with no art and no students. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> it's, actually, it's not normally... I, I'm talking a lot more in this interview than I normally do, and I'm not sure why that is. I think it's just because I'm so excited by all the fire eating. <laughs> okay. So uh, my last question uh, is something I ask everyone. Somebody gives you a million pounds, dollars, or what have you, a significant chunk of money anyway, to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. What do you do with the money? Wow. What would I do with the million dollars for the art, with the art? So I, I know I initially emailed you my response, but I've since thought about it and changed it. And um, mm -hmm. I, I really do have to echo one of the earlier ideas I heard on your podcast. I would probably want to... Uh, actually help people develop you know start building the templates for people who might be smaller or their bodies are different shaped mm -hmm. right because like my initial response when i emailed you has evolved as i listen to podcasts and if, if i really if historical martial arts really are for everyone but they yeah. but sometimes stuff is simply not available for them in their size for multiple circumstances and it would be nice for the research and development to go into producing that equipment that allows people to participate on a wider scale. I mean, protective equipment. Sure. Ah, that, that's, yeah, I, I, I've forgotten which of my guests first uh, floated that idea, but I think that's a really good use of the equipment because the whole point of this, show is to encourage people who might think that well they're not the right body type or they're not from the right background or whatever that actually no historical martial arts are for everyone who actually wants to do them and getting the equipment in their hands is a really good way of sort of demonstrating their welcomeness i guess well yeah it means that we acknowledge that that they exist and that we want to right. be able to create a space for them. So if we make the equipment that, that, you know, essentially 
and we have to make equipment not just for the tall athletic body type but for all of them okay so that that's where, where you'd put that's where you'd put the money that's where i'd put the money like the hema equipment out there is built for my body type already yeah me too yeah then there are other people who want in and we want to bring them in right okay I think that's an excellent, excellent use of the funds. Well, thank you very much, David. That's been a, a really interesting conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. It's nice to sort of connect with you again. I know we met very briefly at a seminar I gave in Toronto some many years ago. Um, but I hope we will get to meet again in person and maybe have a go at some. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll do you a deal. We do a little bit of log sword and a little bit of fire eating. How about that? I'll definitely teach you how to eat fire if you make your way over here or I'm over there. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you, Guy. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with David Ito. I certainly did. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes, which in this case includes video of David going back and forth with that Uh, footwork machine he mentioned as well as pictures and links and other things and of course you can also pick up your free copy of sword fighting for writers game designers and martial artists while you're there thanks as always go to my patrons on patreon who support the show in all sorts of ways not least financially the financial support is extremely helpful but the moral support and the ability to interact with fans of the show in that direct and immediate way is for me at least it's beyond price so thank you dear patrons and if you would like to support the show please do you can find us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy next week on the show we have claire mead who is a self-described sapphic sword witch i'm not making that up she is a freelance curator and the author and illustrator of a webtoon called The Girls' School of Knighthood. It's a fascinating conversation that went into all sorts of directions I was not expecting. So tune in next week and make sure you subscribe to this show so you don't miss it because it's super fun. So I will see you there. And finally, remember to go to go.guywindsor.net for your free courses on meditation, breathing, joint care, longsword and rapier. I look forward to training with you and I hope to see you next week. Cheerio.